Today, I'm speaking with Danielle Nirenberg, the co-founder of Food Tank, a successful nonprofit that's dedicated to cultivating justice within the global food system. Danielle is literally the definition of a game changer, and the Julia Child Foundation agrees. She now joins the ranks of Jose Andres as a recipient of their annual award in recognition of her work towards building a more sustainable and equitable food system. Danielle and I talk about everything from the rise of community-supported agriculture to the future of restaurants and why empowering female farmers is essential to food security and development around the globe. I think you're going to leave this conversation feeling enriched and inspired just like I did. So thank you for joining me and and sharing your story with us. I think what you're doing is so important. I've got to be honest, this was one of the more intense interviews to prep for because literally it's it's about the global food system, which there's so many <laughs> issues that you guys are combating at Food Tank from poverty to global hunger to obesity and then creating networks for all of these issues. So it's, it's huge and it's heady and it's a lot to wrap your head around, especially with the additional problems that we're running into right now. I guess a good place to start would be tell me a little bit about yourself and and how you came to the work that you're doing. I grew up in a very small town called Defiance, Missouri. My family were those people who moved from the city to raise their kids in the fresh air. We were pretty like lower middle class, but I really didn't know it at the time. You know, we had a big garden and like my mom canned everything that would fit in a jar, you know, that kind of thing. But I grew up around farmers and honestly, I thought farmers were dumb. I I didn't understand why you'd want to be a farmer. And I couldn't wait to get the heck out of there. And around the time I was 13, I became sort of an environmentalist. I went vegetarian. I blamed farmers for everything you could imagine, you know, from destroying the rainforest to to whatever. And then um, like every naive 22-year-old, I thought I could save the world. So I, I went into Peace Corps and quickly learned that farmers were the smartest people on earth because I worked a lot with them. I would ride around on the backs of motorcycles of extension workers and visit all these amazing farmers who were farming coffee or cacao or raising honeybees and just really understood, you know, from their perspective, all of the things that they were doing right. And it made me feel a little bit sad that I didn't appreciate the farmers that I grew up with. So then I went to Tufts, the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy to study agriculture, food and environment. That's the very hippy dippy program of the Friedman School. And while I was there, in addition to working as a nanny and at a pizza place, I also interned for an environmental think tank in Washington, D.C. And, you know, really focused a lot on writing and communication. And so I became the food and agriculture director and and directed a project that we called Nourishing the Planet. I studied factory farming around the globe, but with the the Nourishing the Planet work, we spent about 18 months in sub-Saharan Africa studying agricultural innovation very broadly. And I interviewed farmers and scientists and policymakers and journalists and people who are working on the ground. They were doing amazing things. And, you know, Africa and a lot of other parts of the global South often get a bad rap. They You think of conflict and poverty and disease and, you know, hunger and all of these things. And while we certainly saw that, we also saw projects that if they just had a little bit more funding or a little bit more investment or a little bit more attention behind them, that they could really be scaled up and out in in really impactful ways. The organization that I worked with was really focused on the problems, kind of the gloom and doom of, you know, the old environmental movement, either very stupidly or very astutely. My uh, co-founder, Bernard Pollock, and I quit our jobs and 
started Food Tank with like, you know, we ran up his credit cards. We used all of the vacation money that I had accrued at my job because I never took a vacation and invested it all in Food Tank. And so we started about seven years ago and here we are. It's so inspiring. It's interesting. Your story is very similar to mine. I went to UC Santa Cruz and got really involved with the food policy movement. Love it. But it, it was kind of, you know, returned to my roots, if you will. My dad and his side of the family grew up on a farm in Iowa and he came out to California and like wanted to be an actor and like live in Los Angeles. And so we were so far it. removed from all of that. My uncle, his brother is like really into growing food and has his own, you know, small, you know, sort of neighborhood farm that he's, he's had and just like reconnecting with it in, way, in that way. It was really so much a part of like my DNA, I think. So when I started traveling similar to you, I woofed for a, a year after college. I really just, oh, great. yeah, it like re-inspired me. I like tapped into something just in my bones and I was so inspired by farmers, young and old, really all throughout Australia and Southeast Asia. Oh, yeah which was really cool. And something you, you'd you mentioned, I think in one of your TED Talks was that I think it's something like 85% of the farms around the globe are actually smaller farms. Is that correct? I think the stats are a little squishy. It's 75, it's 70 or to 80% probably of small farms that produce the world's food. So that's, you know, that's huge. We always think of big farms producing most of the world's food. To me, it was so fascinating because I think especially in America, we think of big ag and like the huge impact that obviously that has, you know, environmentally, of course, to our health. But then really thinking like, hey, look, these small farmers, if you can help them and empower them and help them to do their job, just like you said, a little bit better, if it was just a little bit of funding, that has a potential to really change the food system as a whole. It's incredibly transformative. I've interviewed women farmers who were making like a dollar a day and then they started a cooperative where they were making like $5 a day. And you think, oh gosh, that's not very much money, but it, it transforms their lives like completely. They can buy school books for their kids. They can buy better clothes. They ate better, you know? And it's like, it's just, it is so transformational for that to, to happen. We always think of women, I think, as caretakers and as the ones who are cooking at home. But around the globe, they're farmers. Because they make up about 43% of the world's agricultural labor force. In some countries, they're 70 to 80% of all farmers. But they don't get the recognition that they need. They are often denied because of discrimination, access to banking and financial resources. They're not as well educated. Extension workers don't normally talk to them. They get poor plots of land that are not nutrient-rich. They're just pounded down from the beginning, but they are the, the people who grow the food that we eat. Most male farmers in the global south are growing things like wheat or rice or maize and, and not growing the food that families actually eat. Yeah, women are caretakers. They're nutritional gatekeepers, but they're also incredible businesswomen and innovators and inventors and teachers really sharing their knowledge with others. They do a lot of the seed saving that goes on in communities without them, like without bees. Without women, the food system would collapse collapse globally. And we need to remember that. Save the women, save the bees. <laughs> we need to save the queens. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. We talked a little bit about the importance of women, especially women farmers in terms of food security around the globe. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening specifically right now in the pandemic. Everything seems to be being attacked or at risk right now. We've got outbreaks in the meatpacking facilities, um, potential closure of wet markets, which is a huge global food source for global communities and then seed shortages with local food banks. 
I'm on the podcast, guys, we've talked a little bit about the meat shortages and meat packing facilities, the COVID outbreaks. We've talked about the closure of wet markets in our second episodes. So you guys can track back. But the seed shortages are something that I'm really curious about. And it's something I experienced even as like a home gardener when I was trying to start yeah. my own little garden here. I was like, I cannot find soil and seeds. We're incredibly hard to find in right. April. So what is going on with our seed source? Well, I mean, like you and like me, we all sort of like, what are we going to do if we're locked up and we, you know, not knowing how the food supply chain was handling this, because I'm sure as you, you know, we all saw empty grocery store shelves, you know, we all sort of went back to our instincts of like, I have to forage for food or grow my own. And Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of the seed companies were just completely overwhelmed, right? They were completely overwhelmed. They didn't expect it. And I, I think what's interesting about it is that from our understanding is that it's not just the seed shortages this year, it's what's going to happen in the spring because a lot of the supplies were just absolutely decimated in some cases from some of these these companies and they stopped selling. And then, you know, what filled that void were these smaller companies, you know, who have done a lot of seed saving, a lot of indigenous practices, you know, sort of filling that void. And I think, you know, like groups like the Experimental Seed Network and Seed Savers Exchange and, and all of these are, are seeds for change. They're doing incredible work, but the question is whether they will be able to keep up come next spring. And I'm not saying... I'm not going to say stockpile seeds now. I don't think that's the answer, but it's just understanding that like food, seeds are going to be probably in short supply. And that's because you say in spring, it's going to be an issue because obviously like the, the, the seeds that they would have been saving would be coming from produce that we're growing right now. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and a lot of these, these seed companies, you can keep seeds for a couple of years. So if they're, you know, they, they had to stop selling and shut down so that they would have something to sell next year. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I actually, something that I think has kind of been cool about this for me is I started my garden. I started going on the Nextdoor app, which has been a wonderful resource for me as like a yeah. home gardener. I wouldn't even call myself an urban gardener, just like a home gardener um, and yeah. Facebook groups actually. And so there are a couple of people in my neighborhood even who are starting to do seed saving. So I think it's a really cool thing for right. people locally to kind of tap into is understand like what is required of seed saving too. Like I, I had, again, no idea about like hybridization and the importance of like bag your tomato before it maybe might cross with another if you've got another tomato variety. But if you are growing right. plants, tap into that and you know that you've got like a solid variety or you got a good seed source, tap into that because there, yeah. there's going to be, you know, this is, a, we're in this for a long haul. We're not even out of phase one yet. Right. I think this moment we're in right now where folks are getting to know each other, even though they can't socialize, you know, being able to get on these Facebook groups or other social media groups and really see what your neighbors are doing, trade resources, trade knowledge, trade food. You know, I have extra tomatoes. Do you have cucumbers? That kind of thing. And, you know, even if you can't interact with people, you know, physically, I I think we're creating more community. This is such a rough time politically, the turbulence that we're seeing, uh, the uncertainty. I think we're all like still very anxious and scared a lot of the time and it just continues. So being able to connect in those other ways, I just think is really, you know, a bright spot in all of this. And we have to keep looking for those bright spots because... We have many, many more months of this. Damn it, people, just wear your masks. If you wear your masks, we will get over this all sooner. 
I don't understand. It's not a political statement. I do it for you. You do it for me. That's the way it works. Oh, girl, if I could tell you, like every single guest I've had on here has been like, this has been what something that's come up in our conversations. And it's just so frustrating that like here, you know, I started this, I'm on episode 12 now. And it's like, we're still having this conversation about like putting on a freaking face mask like it's just not that difficult and like people around the world get a are pretty the, one i got a leopard print i got a tie-dye i got a black one for when i work get out like, come on just get it together and it's like you know ultimately if you don't want to be wearing this thing for the next five years like put on the mask and we're just we've become the laughing stock of the world really it's just like seeing we are the way that you know friends in australia new zealand my friends in france even italy my friends in italy it's like yeah that lockdown sucked i mean that was a really brutal right. intense three months for them but look they're coming out of it and jamie jones is spinning for a crowd <laughs> they're getting out of their summer pool parties right. and i'm sitting here sweating in my, Locked <laughs> in up. my living room trying to do a podcast trying to get some work drummed up it's crazy what are some other things that you're seeing that are like points of inspiration? Doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, due to the coronavirus or, or the pandemic, but just little bright spots in the food world. Cause there's obviously so many issues affecting our food system. What are some, you know, points of inspiration that you keep returning to in dark times? I was talking to Tom Colicchio and um, Irving Fain uh, from the Bowery, which is this large indoor uh, farming operation. And, you know, I, I think that what, what's happening around indoor gardening and sort of, you know, the, the ability to have different flavor profiles, because remember, this is about food. We, we want delicious food, the ability to create better access and affordability, Bowery and Gotham Greens and a, a lot of these other indoor farming operations are partnering with like, you know, local food banks, or they're partnering with nonprofits to distribute, you know, healthy, nutritious produce to folks. I think those are real bright spots. I mean, especially when, you know, people are, are in need of fresh food, probably more than ever. And, and so I think that's really interesting. Sort of on the flip side of that, the, the flip side of the fresh food conversation, I'm really excited about people getting interested in infrastructure again, like canneries or freezing operations, regional localized infrastructure that would help us, you know, make us all more resilient. And I don't even think compete that much with the big canneries and, and processing plants and all of these other things, I think you could have both. And what we've done in this country is sort of, you know, obliterated regional and local infrastructure around agriculture. And this interest in bringing it back, like for fermentation, for canning, or for flash freezing, those are really interesting conversations. And the fact that people are thinking about them in a really structured way, like Chef Dan Barber, I know he's obsessed with this right now. And if you have great minds like his, you know, he's a brilliant chef, but I think he's an even more brilliant thinker. If you have folks like that thinking about this, then, you know, I think post-COVID, we're going to come out with some real concrete ways to revolutionize a food system that needed to be transformed pre-pandemic. Yeah. So I, I like the, all of the smartness that is happening right now as we're all sort of forced to pivot and reflect, like you've had to pivot, we've had to pivot. Out of necessity comes all of this kind of cool stuff. And I'm really excited about that. Absolutely. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about how like some of the world's greatest cuisines came out of necessity. If you think about so many wonderful dishes, even like Brodo, you know, it's like scraps. A lot of these things are like foods of struggle, foods of poverty, foods of comfort. Right. The same thing goes for ideas. Like, look, if you, you got to find a way and humans, yeah. that's a beautiful thing about us is we have this wonderful 
very, you know, conflicted, oftentimes troubling consciousness. Um, and we can, you know, think and, and work together to create solutions. So that's a shining light, a little yeah. silver lining to this all for sure. Can I mention one more bright spot that I, I think initially didn't look like a bright spot? Lord, we I, need I more bright think- spots. Mention as many as you want. <laughs> You know, I don't think without the pandemic, we would have seen the really inspirational uprising that happened over racial inequality in this country. And not that I'm thankful for COVID. It is a tragedy beyond anything I could have ever imagined. But the fact that those two things happened this year, I think is so instrumental in, in getting people to think about the, the history of our American food system and how it's based in slavery and, you know, and, and understanding that racial inequality and discrimination are part of our political system. I think people who just, you know, didn't understand these things. I didn't understand them. I, I understood such a, a small par- portion of it before all this. Now I really, you know, I, I think we're all constantly learning now and, you know, white people are, are being forced to sort of reckon with themselves, you know, and, and ask really hard questions and get uncomfortable. And so much of what Food Tank does is ask people to get uncomfortable, to, to really confront the things that you don't want to think about, to talk to the people who you don't want to talk to, to, to get the ideas and, and sort of confront your own biases about whether it's inequality in our food system or whether it's about, you know, how we distribute food. We need to be asking ourselves hard questions. And I think that is something that I'm really grateful for right now. And again, something I don't think would have happened if we didn't have the pandemic it was time. And I think, you know, it it was, it's been amazing to sort of watch this unfold finally. Yeah. It's really interesting. I feel like we really have become so blind to not only the way that the food is processed and how completely gross that is, but also the inequity, you know, and and said this time really has highlighted that latter part, you know, that was built on a system of slavery and continues to this day to be one of the most inequitable systems in in the world, especially in terms of racial injustice. And I you have to agree. I think that, you know, it was the perfect time. People were cooped up for three months at least and constantly reading the news. fed up. Fed up. And And just just fed up of murders, you know, and, you know. You want to get together. I mean, I feel like it was such an interesting time because it's like so many people I know, it was their first protest that they ever went to. I, like you, I'm a total hippie. I went to UC Santa Cruz, like marching in the streets is like my (laughs) favorite hobby. But, you know, a lot of my friends had never been to a protest. Um, Uh, That was great though. Really moving to see so many people going out for the first time, you know, arm in arm and standing with our brothers and sisters for equality. And I think that's really, it's, it was really powerful. What are some things we can do as like a consumer in terms of addressing those issues of uh, racial inequity here in the States? You know, I I feel like everyone else does. You should be supporting BIPOC-owned businesses, Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned businesses. Voting with your fork is always the best, you know, way to to sort of use your money, right? So if you can, and if, you know, I live in Baltimore, there are many Black-owned businesses here that uh, need support and should be supported, right? But I think it goes back to what I was alluding to before. We have to get uncomfortable. We have to confront ourselves. We have to educate ourselves. This is about white people. We have to become informed. We have to stand back and listen and stop telling people what to do. I think, you know, that has been a real problem of development. And that is something that we are have not been good at. You know, having these deep sort of conversations 
about your own racist tendencies or about the biases that, you know, we all sort of have, even if, you know, we don't want to admit it and, and really confronting those and, and making sure that we're aware and educated and that we're not putting the burden of, of answering these questions on, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color. There's something we have to grapple with. It, it is our personal reckoning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's like a continual process too. I think it's like this growth and change is going to be something that doesn't just take, you know, a week or two of, you know, social media action and black squares and, right. you know, promoting voices of color. And how many people bought that, how to be an anti-racist book. And it's like now being used as a doorstop. Something you have to keep doing. It's like, it, it's not just a one-off. It's not just your project for this year. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's looking. like exercising. You Like if you do it, if you exercise this, you know, new muscle that you found every day, then you will become a stronger ally and supporter. As we're thinking about rebuilding a food system specifically here in the U.S., what would fix that? What's the solution to future? Yeah, I mean, gosh, right. That's the question, right? We have to realize that these things are interconnected and that resiliency, you know, was the word before all this and it continues to be the word. How do we build resiliency back into the food system so that when the next shock happens, and it will, or the ongoing shock of climate change continues, that we can better deal with it. So it goes back to that infrastructure point. You know, our, our, our meat system, our meat processing system in this country is so fragile because people are working in, at very high volume and high speeds and standing very close to one another. Uh, and there's not a lot of room for breaks or, you know, proper protective equipment or, you know, even, you know, being able to wash your hands every time you, you want to. And so understanding that, you know, we need more of those processing plants, not less, that we need more of the infrastructure that will really build that resilience. So it's, it's, it's going back to the way things, you know, used to be, but in a, in a really sort of future thinking way. Every town used to have its own cannery, its own flour mill, its own, you know, butcher and processing facility, spreading things out again so that everything's not so consolidated. I mean, our, our food system, you know, people tell me this all the time that it's not broken because it, it's working exactly as it was set up to be. And it was set up to be consolidated and, and deliver the most calories at the cheapest cost. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to do is dismantle that and, and really focus on quality and nutrient density. Again, we talk a lot about food security, but we don't talk a lot about nutrition security. COVID has exposed that in a really interesting way because the people who are the least healthy, the folks who have diet-related diseases, because, you know, of no fault of their own, but, but you know, because of their circumstances and are, are faring the worst when they get COVID. And so if we can really invest in, in, in healthcare again and, and figuring out how to prevent these diseases so that people can withstand a virus like COVID or withstand the next, you know, virus that comes our way. Those are some of the things that I'm thinking about right now that I can't articulate well because I'm still sort of sorted. I think we're all just sorting them out, you know, and, and I hope by this time next year that we have this real plan, you know, what, what's the kind of food system we want and, and do we have the leaders and the, the thinkers and doers in place who can really execute that? 
Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you're not rambling at all. It's a really complicated issue. Like to be like, the solution is this one thing really is, it would, you know, <laughs> devolidify the whole argument because it is, it's a system. It's not one thing. It's so many pieces yeah. of, you know, so many gears in a machine and all of them have to be working. And so many of them have completely yeah. ground to a halting stop or desperately need some WD-40 for this thing to keep on going and for yeah. our machine to keep on moving forward. We need some serious maintenance. <laughs> As we have this continued phase one and eventually there's going to be a phase two of the pandemic, do you envision that there's going to be an increased reliance on small farmers? I've loved seeing like all of the um, CSA boxes and everybody really taking part in that. Do you think that we're yeah. this resurgence of small farmers like there are around, you know, the world, this 85%, you know, 75, 85%, do you think we'll see that again? Yeah. I love the the interest in CSAs and like, you know, farmers markets and people really caring about where their food comes from. There's a lot of burden on farmers though right now and farmers who were delivering to restaurants or schools that didn't have to market online, that didn't have to package in these small packages like my CSA comes in these great brown paper bags. A lot of the, the farms that are doing that now weren't doing that before. It's a lot of extra burden to ask a farmer who, you know, she's been producing, she's been in her field. And, you know, would make one weekly delivery now is making several and packaging things differently and, and you know, marketing online and building a website and all of these things. You know, it's and thankfully there are organizations out there helping these small farmers, small and medium sized farmers. But I think it's a lot of burden and I think they're exhausted, you know, in a lot of ways. Like they had to step they had to fill a gap that, you know, wasn't meant to be filled. And I don't you know, I hope that it, it remains to be seen. I think if the economic returns for them are worth it, because when you had a contract with a, a restaurant, you know, that was probably a lot, you know, easier on you. You could deliver things unprocessed. So it's a lot more cost in terms of labor and all of those things. So I, I, I just don't know how long we can ask farmers to keep up at this pace. It, yeah, it's definitely concerning. They need support. Uh, they they need, need support. They need, you know, federal legislation to really help them. They need all of these things. I, I, I think they continue to be a bright spot. Like, I, I couldn't have survived this pandemic without my CSA, right? And I don't think a lot of people, you know, it, they've made me happy. Like, getting a delivery from a, you know, somebody every week is like my the joy. I'm like, oh, someone's here. <laughs> fresh treats and the colors and the cornucopia. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it is. It's real, right. very visceral. But they, they need, you know, they need some, some resources. And I think it's up to, you know, the government to, to really invest in them again. Yeah, absolutely. I think there really just has to be a huge uh, influx, uh, just a pumping of cash back into restaurants, back into our farmers, back into, I mean, every element. I, you know, also here in LA, I do a lot of production in in that space of culinary storytelling. And you're not going to be able to go back to shooting, filming anytime soon. And it's like we have here, we've got the eviction moratoriums are coming to an end in six days. We've got, you know, CARES Act expiring in six days. And I think a lot of us, self-included, are wondering, like, oh, now what's going to happen? Right. So I, I do hope, you know, I mean, my like, again, the hippie trippy, you know, like granola crunchy girl in me is like, just divest in the military. Like we're divesting in the police. Like, why do we need to be off in Afghanistan right now? I don't know. Like, can we maybe take some of that like military spending? Like right. the police budget looks huge to me, but let's talk about the well, military spending. Holy cow. Yeah. 
let's talk about real national security too. You know, food security and nutrition security are real national security issues, you know, and, and uh, Tom Colicchio was just telling me today, he's like, the folks who try to join the military, about 25% of them are turned away because they're not healthy. They, they wow. have too many diet related. So I, I, I know that's been an ongoing problem in the U.S., but it's still like, you know, and often, and what makes me feel even worse about that is that the military is often the option of last resort for like the kids I grew up with, you know what I mean? Like, you know, rural kids who didn't want to, or couldn't go to college or, you know, urban kids who are trying to start over the fact that like, they're not healthy enough because our food system sucks so bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) is, is a travesty to me. So if we really want to think about, you know, what national security looks like, then we should start thinking about these things. Yeah, it really gets to the root of the issue. It's like, well, hold on, let's retrace it back a little bit. Like, what is going on here? Um, And providing access to good, clean, fair food is is just much a human right. And being able to afford it. Yeah, yeah, being able to afford it. All of those things are so important. And it starts from, you know, square one, I I went to LAUSD, so I'm a public, product of public schools. My parents were both retired LAUSD. Uh, mom, a teacher, dad, an assistant principal. And I, as much as I love like the chocolate chip cookies at the LAUSD school system or incredible. However, the rest of the food that is just like, oh my gosh. And I know Michelle Obama tried right. to do something with you know our national school lunch programs and same with Jamie Oliver. But that stuff takes time. It's like when you're used to eating Flamin' Hot Cheetos, which love me some flaming hot cheetos don't get me wrong but if you're used to eating that and you know like really terrible white bread cheese sandwiches and just totally nutritionally devoid food you get addicted to it i mean like you get addicted to that salt and the fat and the carbs and it's yeah. like, it takes a while for your palate to transition off of it so for them to be deemed a failure after Absolutely. like not even a year it's like well, what did you i mean come on guys this is a long it takes a long sustained growth and change absolutely um, which I'm absolutely sure, you know, across and the board it has and to the start world. with kids if you were to give us three things that we could do as eaters to make a positive impact, what would they be? The first and foremost is thinking about where your food comes from, like asking the question, like, you know, how did this come to be? (laughs) You know, how did this food get into my kitchen? I think that's a really important question that like a lot of people haven't had to ask before. And, you know, sort of learning the story of your food. And I, I don't like anything that causes consumers extra worry or places extra onus on them right now because everyone's so frazzled. But I think it's just like, it's important to know where your food comes from. I don't think buying organic is enough. I'm a big proponent of organic, but I don't think just buying organic is enough. It's like understanding, you know, your local food system. So I think that's one big thing, just sort of educating yourself. Like, are there farms around me? Are there CSAs? you know, where does this come from? And that kind of thing. Um, are there urban farms where I could be sourcing some food? That, those kinds of questions. I mean, before the pandemic, I would have said, oh, cook for yourself occasionally. So you know how much work goes into it. But now I'm <laughs> tired of cooking. So done. So over it. I might add the suggestion, of course, we're all cooking for ourselves, but maybe cook something different. Maybe cook something that uh, might teach you something about another culture that you may not be from or a recipe that might challenge you to understand something maybe scientifically about the process. Just cooking something a little bit different than what your your routine, because we all get into those routines. I definitely have my my tuna melt lunches on lock right now. I think it's like, I love what you just said. Uh, and, and in addition to that, like getting some cookbooks that are outside your comfort zone, like there's a book that's not a cookbook, but it has recipes in it, but written by Leah Penniman, which is called uh, Farming While Black. And it's just this great book of history 
of, you know, far, farming and gardening, you know, uh, instructions, and then recipes, like very simple ones that, that have a unique place in the culture of the United States, because, you know, many of the crops that we have were brought over in slaves' hair. They were braided into their hair. So just like understanding the kind of the beauty of like, you know, yams and collards and things that like are nutritious and delicious and exploring that or what Bryant Terry does to make vegan food both sort of a political statement and also taste delicious. I, you know, the, I so, love him. or, you know, going back like to Julia Child's book and finding some things that like make you happy or make you interested or make you wonder like, what the hell is this? And why were people eating aspic? You know, and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> understanding like why, you know, the, the sort of the history of our food here in the United States, I think is really, really interesting. Totally. And something that I've been doing, I've been pulling cookbooks that I never open, you know, I just like cracking open these books and being like, oh, this looks good. And mm-hmm. I don't have all the ingredients, but I'll, I'll modify it this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things my mom, right before the pandemic, moved to Baltimore to be closer to me and my husband. And one of the things that I think has been good for me to understand is, you know, and I have to socially distance myself from her because she's older, but like cooking for other people. I mean, I cook for my husband, he cooks for me, but like cooking for your mom, like cooking for other people, sharing food when you can, doing it safely, I think is really sweet, you know? And like, I was like, I, heard my mom, I was like, you might not like this, but you know, it, it just, you know, but like, again, what you were talking about, the Facebook groups, you know, there's a way to do this where we can do it safely. Like that, the sharing of food, you know, whether you're handing a tomato or putting it on someone's porch or whatever, those are really like nice, you know, things to do when there's not a lot of niceness going on or, or as much as I would like to see, you know what I mean? So that, that could be one one other thing for for consumers to do you know i love that so sort of buy small buy local cook more and share share more share more That's you can fair. i love that hey you talked a little bit about julia child and i want to say congratulations on winning the julia child oh, foundation you. award that is huge oh my god i'm still in shock i can't i can't even believe that my name is said not only in, you know, the same sentence as her name, but the other recipient. So it's, it's, I'm still in shock. I keep waiting for them to call me and say, uh, no, we're taking it away. You didn't really win it. It was meant for someone else. No, (laughs) what you're doing is so worthy of it on the global scale. I mean, I I used to love watching Julia Child on PBS. Like she was one of the first food shows I was ever exposed to that and Martin Yan and Great Chefs, Great Cities, but she was just like, what a national treasure. Do you, do you remember watching her growing up? Oh yeah. And I remember, um, uh, wanting to cook my parents for their anniversary, something that like she had cooked, which was just, you know, not just, but it was a roast chicken. And my mom, being like, I was 10, she was like, being sort of skeptical, but getting me all the ingredients. And I'm sure it was awful, but my parents told me they loved it. But I think the cool thing about her, as you mentioned, it was, it was Julia Child and then all these male chefs. Mm-hmm. right on PBS. You didn't see a woman like as this sort of chefy like you do now on the Food Network or whatever uh, person. And I just think that's what she really trailblazed, not just that, but sort of making people feel comfortable in the kitchen because she was not pretentious. And she was, you know, she was the queen of sort of innovation. You know, if, 
being able to cobble together things that had fallen on the floor or whatever. I just think, mm-hmm. you know, she really made us all feel like we could, we could do what she was doing. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the time too is a lot of like French cookery, right? And it's like, I obviously understand why that is problematic. It's very Eurocentric, but at the same time, it allowed people to kind of explore another culture through the kitchen. I mean, it opened so many doors for so many people, self-included. You right. Know? I, yeah, I loved her approach. It was so unfussy, goofy. I'm, I'm also really tall. I'm six feet tall. And so it just kind of made me feel better what? as a tall girl. Yeah. 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 And like with such joy, right? I feel like now, especially the food world has kind of become so serious and all, you know, there's a little obviously change happening with the tattooed white male chef, you know, dominant <laughs> world we lived Yelling. in for so long. Yeah. The screamers, you know, it's just like a pans yeah. flying everywhere. Um, it made me feel like I had a place and it really was an ins- inspiration, I think, for so many young women. What does that award entail? Are you then, um, you know, an ambassador for them? How does that work? So um, there will be an event. It will be mostly virtual to uh, around World Food Day. Uh, the Smithsonian always has a Food History Week where Julia's Kitchen is is uh, shown off and all of these great panels happen. And then we're using the grant um, when we can all gather safely again to do a Food Talk live series where I will be doing what we're doing right now, having con- uh, conversations with, you know, uh, cool folks who are doing cool things and food. And, and again, having some of those uncomfortable conversations if needed, because people don't wear their masks, we will um, have those virtually, but um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I hope that we'll, we'll soon be able to meet in person. And then the other part of the, the grant that we're going to use it for is to create a food justice fellowship. A food tank is only uh, three full-time people. We have fellows and interns as well, but we're, there's only three of us. But what we would like to create is a food justice fellowship so that we can have one person who's specifically devoted to writing about issues around food justice and inequality and equality and, and how we create that. So um, stay tuned for for that. Yeah. What do you feel? I always ask my guests this. Is there a song you're listening to right now uh, that you feel like really embodies your work or this moment or anything you're just like really grooving to that's that's giving you life? Like I'm going to, this is like embarrassing, but it's also such a part of who I am. Last night, I was so excited because I'm a big Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds fan. Yes. And um, he had a virtual concert last night that was filmed just him um, in June at the at this theater in London. So it was just kind of this beautiful him at the piano just belting out songs. And um, he has a new song called Idiot Prayer. And it just sort of like his dismantling of religion and politics just sort of all came together mm. last night. But I think the, the, the song- Sounds like a modern day Imagine. I love, you know what I mean? It's a Nick Cave's version of Imagine. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. The, 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 song, the song that really embodies how I feel right now is by the Rex and it's just called Freaking Out. So, like, <laughs> Which is so But true. I don't know We're if any of these- it. Yeah, no, Nick Cave is beautiful. It's great. I'm actually putting together um, a fork in the road trip playlist. So we're going to have like a road trip playlist from, you know, for folks as they're hitting the road. And so that's so great to hear your your insight. And Nick Cave is so beautiful. I can't believe I missed that concert. I'm going to have to look that up. I hope it's on YouTube. Yeah, I hope it does. They they said it would not. And my husband was like, do you want me to like figure out how to record it? And I'm like, no, it's meant to be like a concert. I used to be such a live music 
fan pre-COVID. I mean, I still am. I just can't do it. So I'm yeah. like, no, I have to remember it as it happened. Not, yeah. you know, I don't want to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really beautiful that they did that. Live streaming has been giving me life as well, but I can't wait for it <laughs> today sure. when we can see some live music again. And like you said, be out in the field um, and we'll get yeah. there. We just have to be smart about it. Um, take advice from experts, um, you know, advice from experts like yourself as well. The food system is a huge piece of this puzzle and that's, um, you know, it's something we all need to heed warning of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much um, for joining me. Tell everybody where they can follow along with you and your work, Danielle. They can go to foodtank.com. They can follow us on social media at foodtank and they can email me uh, danielle at foodtank.com. Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again. So great to meet you. Yeah. Great to meet you too. Stay healthy, stay safe. You know to wear the mask. I don't even need to tell you. Preaching to the choir. (laughs) Don't forget to give us a follow too on IG and Twitter at Krista Simmons and at Fork in the Road Media. We'll see you all next week.